Hi, all you More Than a Pretty Face listeners. It's your host, Natalia. I know it's been a while since we've had an episode, and I promise that's changing come the new year. But uh, today, I'm launching my new podcast called Lead Graph Podcast, where we take the stories that are buried on page 12 and bring them to the forefront, making them the main headline. So Lead Graph is spelled L-E-D-E-G-R-A-F. It's a term we use in journalism. But um, I, of course, wanted my More Than a Pretty Face listeners uh, to check out the podcast. So I've dropped it in the More Than a Pretty Face feed, and it'll play right after this intro. So please go rate, review, and subscribe to the show, The Lead Graph Podcast. Um, And I hope y'all enjoy it. All right, let me know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Lead Graph Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Abrahams, and I'm really excited about this podcast. So just a little background about me. I'm currently a journalist and have been working in the field for a few years now. And I think it's really important to highlight the stories, not just the ones that we see on cable news all the time or the ones that make the front page of the New York Times, But there's also some really big topics and really important issues going on a little below the fold. So I'm here to share them with you, or at least try to. And that's where the Lead Graph podcast comes in. So for today's topic, for this very first episode, I'm going to be talking about parole boards. Just a quick disclaimer, I'm not an expert on parole boards, nor do I claim to be. I'm merely a storyteller, journalist, listener, writer, and as always, a Beyonce enthusiast. Just here to share these lead graphs with you. So in talking about parole wards, it's not just about letting people out on parole, but it's also about the obstacle of getting them in front of the parole boards in the first place. Now, while there's a lot to discuss when it comes to this topic, I'm mainly going to be focusing on the political and cultural nature of the boards. I want to start off with a little story just to kind of set the scene. In 1963, Henry Montgomery was 17 years old when he killed a deputy sheriff in the state of Louisiana. He was tried and sentenced to death. However, that original death sentence was overturned because of prejudice in the original jury trial. Montgomery was then retried and sentenced to life without parole. In 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down a landmark ruling in Miller v. Alabama, which prohibited the sentencing of juveniles to life in prison without the chance of parole. So in 2016, Montgomery filed his own petition with the U.S. Supreme Court asking them to overturn the Supreme Court of Louisiana's ruling denying Montgomery's motion that his life sentence was illegal, evident by the outcome of Miller v. Alabama. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of Montgomery, saying that 
mandatory life without parole for juvenile homicide offenders violates the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishments. In his most recent parole board hearing, there was just one member who voted against Montgomery's release. And in the state of Louisiana, it's required that it be a unanimous vote. The Marshall Project, a nonprofit criminal justice journalism outlet, reported the justification for his first denial of parole was Montgomery's lack of classes and involvement in programs. The board cited that he had not completed enough classes and rehabilitative programs. However, they neglected to mention the fact that for the first 30 years of his prison sentence, Montgomery was denied entry into any of those programs. Despite that, he worked in the prison silk shop for 20 years and was named Employee of the Month eight times. Now, in his mid-70s, Montgomery has spent well over 50 years of his life in prison. Since the ruling of his case, Montgomery has applied for parole twice and been denied both times, the most recent being on April 11, 2019. Nonetheless, because of Montgomery's ruling with the Supreme Court, 450 juvenile lifers have now been granted release. From the Urban Institute. Stripped of the opportunity to work towards early release, people serving long sentences were given little structural incentive to take part in programming, develop skills, or otherwise try to transform their lives. Instead of serving as rehabilitation centers, prisons become warehouses where people serve time with few opportunities to redeem themselves and little hope for the future. Parole boards are usually appointed by the governors of their states, 44 states to be exact. This makes them inherently political. Allowing the governor to pick who's on the parole board automatically puts certain folks at a disadvantage. While the majority of these boards are staffed by those who are involved in law enforcement or formerly involved in law enforcement, they lack the staffing of those who are social workers, those involved in rehabilitative programs, or those who have been formerly incarcerated themselves. And it is only recently that a handful of states have actually passed laws with minimum requirements of those who could be on the board. Parole boards have a lot of discretionary power. They work with little oversight and lack of accountability, meaning that when they evaluate someone, it could be completely arbitrary. There's no requirement that parole boards be representative of either the population they are reviewing or the community to which individuals are released. If a prisoner is denied parole, they can be deferred or set off for another parole hearing, and this is at the discretion of the board and the state. Some states require that prisoners wait 10 years or more before they're allowed to come in front of the board again. According to the National Conference of State Legislators, each state legislator is allowed to determine a criminal code and sentencing system. Now, we have to take it back to the 1980s and 90s. Lawmakers on both sides of the aisle enacted policies that swept more people into the criminal justice system and held them there for longer, despite evidence that this would actually help control crime. 
This made the current sentencing system become defined by severity rather than fitting the crime to the punishment. States drove up the time spent in prison by lengthening sentences and restricting release. This led to the increase in the amount of time people have to serve before they can even be considered for parole. 33 states operate with indeterminate sentencing systems, meaning a parole board determines when an offender has served sufficient time in a prison and when he or she can be safely released on parole. Rather than basing it on what the prisoner has accomplished or the programs that and classes that they've had access to, the parole board does have complete discretion upon when and how a prisoner can get released. States started imposing mandatory minimums, and because of this, between the years of 1990 to 2009, the average time served increased by 36%. With the laws passed in the 80s and 90s, this limited the idea of good time and getting credits for completing programs. This became known as truth in sentencing laws. The Urban Institute has found that the longest prison sentences are getting longer, this meaning that they're still feeling the effects from the 80s and 90s. There has been a lot of reform when it comes to the sentencing of lower-level crimes such as drug offenses. Those alternative programs are not helping as much as you think. Most of those people wouldn't be staying long in prison anyway, and it doesn't actually help with those who are facing longer prison sentences or the overcrowding issues that prisons are currently facing. From Sarah French Russell, legal scholar and professor at Quinnipiac University. Parole boards have not been required to make the possibility of parole release realistic for inmates. Most parole boards require that you put together parole packets. Those parole packets are meant to demonstrate that you've done the work on yourself, you feel true remorse for your crime, you've had accessibility to classes or restorative programs and counseling. However, due to lack of funding inside our prison system, many people aren't able to participate in these classes or get the counseling they deserve or understand why the crimes that they did were wrong. Therefore, when they go up in front of the board, their packets are deemed insufficient. The Urban Institute says states grappling with expanding prison populations will see their efforts to curb mass incarceration fall short unless reforms include those serving the longest prison term. Things like mandatory minimums and California's three-strike law have actually made it even more difficult for people to get in front of parole boards, requiring that some offenders actually serve 85% of their time, even if they have completed rehabilitative programs. Important to note is that many of those who are serving life sentences actually committed these crimes in their youth. The data shows that we should consider the idea of youth up to the age of 24, because our brains are still developing. The ACLU has found that in 12 states alone, there are over 8,300 juvenile offenders who are serving sentences of parolable life or at least 40 years. However, the research shows that young folks who commit serious and even violent crimes are not likely to resubmit. 
from Parole Prep New York, an organization that helps those who are incarcerated prepare for the parole boards. As the criminal legal system at large, people of color, and more specifically Black men, are profoundly and disproportionately impacted by parole policy. Aging and elderly people are also deeply affected. Many people serving life sentences are over the age of 50, with some entering their 60s and 70s. Their release rates remain intractably low, despite the statistical fact that criminal conduct decreases substantially with age and infirmity. So you may be wondering, who does this affect the most? Well, as usual, the answer is black and brown folks. Black folks are five times more likely to be sent to prison than white people. There's even larger disparities amongst those who are serving the longest prison sentences. For example, in Pennsylvania, black people make up 49% of the state prison population, but 60% of those serving the longest prison terms. Interestingly enough, racial disparities have decreased amongst those who are serving shorter prison terms, but they have increased among those who are serving longer prison terms. The top 10% of those with the longest prison sentences committed crimes in their youth. This also significantly impacts the aging population. And you're thinking, why does this matter? Despite the fact that it impacts greatly black and brown folks and the aging population, this actually costs taxpayers a lot of money, specifically when it comes to the aging population in prison. It actually would be cheaper to have them released on parole and be on Medicaid or Medicare. Both groups, those who committed violent crimes when they were younger and those who are part of the aging population actually show extremely low rates of recidivism. The growing trend of growing prison populations has actually led to millions being spent and the burden is put on the state and therefore the people. But the prison system does need more funding when it comes to rehabilitative programs, classes, and counseling, and preparation for those going up in front of the parole board. Many prisoners who go up in front of the parole board aren't actually equipped to return to civilian life. And that's where our resources should be going to make the impact into greater society. I hope you learned a little bit of something about parole boards this week. If you want to dive in deeper, feel free to take a look at the Urban Institute's A Matter of Time, The Causes and Consequences of Rising Time Served in America's Prisons by Lee Courtney, Sarah Epler Epstein, Elizabeth Peltier, Ryan King, and Serena Lee. Take a look at the Sentencing Project, Release Aging People in Prison Organization, the podcast Ear Hustle, or the Parole Project. I have all of these linked in the show notes so you can click through and explore at your leisure. And that's a wrap for the very first episode of the Lead Graph Podcast, where we take the stories that are buried on page 12 and make them the main headline. Thank you for joining me in this discussion about parole boards. I hope you dig in deeper. And I hope to see you here for another week. If you'd like to connect with the show, please feel free to email at leadgraphpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Drop me a tip on a hot story or topic. 
And if you'd like to connect with us on social media, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Lead Graph Podcast. I also host another podcast called More Than a Pretty Face, where I talk to really rad women about their backgrounds, successes, challenges, and stories. You can find the sh- that show on social media at Pretty Face Lady 3. And again, I'm your host, Natalia, a believer, a storyteller, a listener, a journalist, and as always, a Beyonce enthusiast. Talk to you soon.